Well, good morning, church. Happy Pentecost Sunday. Did you know it's Pentecost Sunday? Good. A second set of parents right there knew. I'm glad for that. See, this, uh, this, this day should be on our radars as believers because this is the birthday of the church. So just like Christmas is really meaningful, we should celebrate that, the Savior being born. Uh, as one of us, we celebrate Easter, his resurrection. On Pentecost, we celebrate the Spirit indwelling every believer. Isn't that awesome? God himself, in all the power that was spoken, that said, let there be light. Because remember, the Spirit was there hovering, and he was doing it all. He comes into the heart of every believer in Jesus. Isn't that amazing? That's what today represents. So I'm a little excited about that. I like that. I like it a lot. If you would, please turn up into 1 Timothy chapter 5. We are going to read through the entire chapter and also the first couple of verses of chapter 6. I believe they all are, are within the same thought that the Apostle Paul is instructing Timothy in. Now, before we get into this, this can look just like a bunch of uh, tips for leaders of the church that have no bearing and, and impact on everyday church members. Now, they... They have themes in here that every one of us should be owning and understanding so they can show up in our lives in very unique ways as we want the glory of God to show up in every category of our life, particularly within the church. Uh, those that can be overlooked, maybe marginalized on the outskirts because they're not, we don't cross paths enough with many people, so we want to be aware of the themes that, that Paul's instructing Timothy to, to be happening in the church at Ephesus, but we want to make sure that we're postured as a church to do the same. 1 Timothy 5, verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Honor widows who, tru who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even when she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation of good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. See commitment there, their former commitment. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what should not, what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. 
Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it, when it treads out grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that they may, they may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Do not take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters may not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Father, we ask by the power of your spirit that is in us to help us understand your heart to be able to be the church that shines with Jesus. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. The church is unlike anything else on earth. Every group of people on the earth typically, I'm not thinking like extended, but for the most part, follow me. The church is not a place that you, you generally just, it's not a, a social club that you sign up with to get some benefit out of it, as we have and know within society. There's just social clubs, joining them, looking for contacts, making sure you can just get a better something. The church is the place that God gathers his people. But listen, it's people that you wouldn't probably choose to hang out with because God saves all types of peoples. And he brings them together in his church and we share a fellowship in the spirit that then looks like and feels like love and care. That's why this is a very, very different deal. And it's, it's celebrated, and it should be celebrated. We know that because we live in a lost and dying world. They're looking for Jesus at every turn, but they keep on thinking that if they can have the right politician, then things would settle down. If they, if they had enough money, things would settle down. But their hearts continue to rage. We experience the peace of God, provided by his spirit. So the onlooking world can be invited in to experience what we know and what we have. In this context, in this passage this morning, there are several spiritual principles that are found throughout Scripture. Uh, this section, it flows directly from Paul explaining the expected conduct for the church. Hey, here's how the church is expected to behave as the pillar and the buttress of the truth. And the instructions and the expectations, they show up in three main categories, widows, elders, and servants. Paul begins with an explanation of how Timothy should first interact with people of the different age demographics within the church. And he chooses to describe these with words that resemble a family. Fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters. 
one of my, a, a tease about Stu and Nancy being my second parents because um, I've been knowing them since I was nine years old within church. And we just experience family together. And it's, for me, church as a family is my thing. It's like I want everybody to feel that we are together and we are a family because it just flows out of me. I, that's what I enjoyed. It's what I enjoy. It's what we strive to make sure that we know one another. We should be feel surrounded and have the types of relationships where it feels like it's the older ones, the aunts and uncles and people around our age are the cousins and maybe we have a second generation cousins and the church should feel like that. And Paul is using those words on purpose because when families are that way and when you love one another through, <clears throat> through seasons of life, you build a relational equity with one another. And with that relational equity comes now speaking the truth in love and not being misunderstood, or minimizing being misunderstood. We need to have a relational equity, and that shows up with serving one another. It shows up with caring for one another, and, and it shows up in, in the, the little things that we do in our interactions and our conversations, just expressing our affirmation or expressing our care, our appreciation. There's an honor that should accompany our relationships. Now, there's a Goofy little colloquial phrase. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. That's a biblical concept. So we, we do know that. We want to, you don't want to be corrected by somebody you don't know. And when you, somebody brings observation into your life, you want to make sure, hey, do you know me well enough to be able to understand what's going on first? And we give each other the benefit of the doubt. Usually the, the benefit of the doubt shows up when we have a relational equity that when we hear of something or observe something in our lives, we, we know it to be an aberration, a, a difference than the norm. Because now that doesn't sound like you. I know you. I know it's different. But if all we know is the little blips on the screen, then we go and address those and it feels unloving. But the church should be and feel a family. Honor builds that relational equity to gain the heart, to, to capture the heart. And Paul's giving instruction on caring for those that are marginalized in the church, those that are overlooked. Widows can be overlooked because they're in the shadows of church activity. Elders can be overlooked. This kind of might sound counterintuitive, but elders can be overlooked in their care because they're expected to be leaders. They should be leaders, so we assume they have it all together. And servants can be overlooked for not having the same social status, but particularly in this context, uh, but there, and I'm going to talk about this. Those the servants were having this pride issue with their masters because they had Christian bosses, and they're like, "Hey, we're brothers in the church, so you shouldn't talk to me that way anymore. I should be able to be have some freedoms." But they still had a debt that needed to be paid. But the bottom line is this: God pays attention to each of these categories, and the church should pay attention. And God, He's always paid attention to them. So our, our main caption point is the church's honor of those often overlooked in the church, within the church. The church's honor shines in the truth of Jesus' sacrifice. First category with widows. He, the church is to honor widows with mercy. And he gives this category of true widows. 
Widows who are truly widows are those who cannot support themselves and have been left with no family to help them. Two criteria. The first is the family bears the responsibility. If a widow has children and grandchildren, they need to step up to not overburden the church. Families should help shoulder the load of care so the church is not overburdened and that caring for the family demonstrates a godliness. That's why he comes saying, look, if you're not caring for your older parents or grandparents, if you're not caring for them and you can, you're worse than an unbeliever because people who are wretched do that. Maybe they do it for selfish reasons, but I think Paul's thinking back even to, to Jesus saying to the Pharisees, you say, you say that somebody can say Corbin, and that means given to God. All my stuff is given to God, but all of it is an excuse to not honor father and mother because they act like, oh no, God, God has all my money. I get to use it however I want, and I'm not going to use it to take care of you, so I just get to keep on living life the way I want. And the Pharisees are like, okay, as long as you keep on giving to the church, we're good. But they were overlooking honor your father and your mother. But then the church is also to take on a financial responsibility for widows. The church is to care for widows by supporting them financially. Now, there can be a, a, a seems to be in this maybe a little relationship that Paul is saying, uh, in, in some ways, the widow kind of gets hired by the church to continue in those prayers and supplications. And so that's the, that's the repay. Not that it's looking to clock in and out of something, but it's the, it, the general sense is that the widow has been giving already to the church, and the church blesses her and says, thank you, out of gratitude. Supporting widows is an overflow of God's heart. And we see that in James one twenty seven. Well, he says, this, this is religion that's pure and it's undefiled. To seek after orphans and widows and care for them in their affliction. God's always paying attention to that. But listen, we can think of, we can think of moments in our lives where we have felt overlooked. But God is always watching over us. And so we have to be careful. Sometimes we want to be... We want something from people. We, we want an affirmation or significance or acceptance or some praise from them to make us feel like, all right, my heart is finally settled. But listen, if we do that, we're just chasing chickens all the time. And we aren't, we aren't rocky. We'll never, ever catch it. We have, to, we have to be settled by the voice of God and his love singing over us and settling our hearts. Zephaniah 3.17 comes to mind. He quiets us by his love and he sings loudly over us. So we enjoy him. That's what he's looking to do. He's always looking over us, even when the darkest moments when we feel most overlooked. Then Paul gives some criteria for this mercy that should be shown to the, the widows. The one, they need to truly be alone, but they need to be those who have demonstrated a hope in God through a ministry of prayer to the body of Christ. A dear lady from our sending church across the lake years ago is now with Jesus. She had a ministry of writing birthday cards and anniversary cards to the church. And my kids remember getting a card from Miss Verla. And she would always put Mississippi girls, so she put all these weird jokes in there and stuff. And it was great. But it was always a surprise, even though like, you wondered if Miss Verla was going to remember. But people just supplied cards for her. 
She spent her days writing them out. Now, it's one thing to write it out and just put, love Miss Verla, but she wrote jokes on the other side. It was intentional and it took time. But what a blessing that was to us as a church. A widow needed to be at least 60. Uh, this, this may have been pretty old back then. They, they could have, uh, it's hard to look at this criteria. The, the life expectancy back then in the first century was 35 years old, but there was a lot of infant death. So that skews numbers. But somebody who uh, made it to 60, which was a little rare, probably made it to 70. They were just healthy. So he's saying, care for those. And they, they probably have something to give back to the church. But again, there's another criteria, faithful to her husband, this one, uh, literally a one-man woman, just like the elders are to be a one-woman man. This, it's this marital fidelity, it's purity, it's, it's faithfulness. And then a godly reputation in raising her children, hospitable, serving the church, and in a devotion that everybody wants and everybody's jealous of. And he says to younger widows, get married. Don't be a burden on the church thinking like, no, 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 it's that little weird false teaching that was around. Don't get married because it's a little less spiritual so you can be single and be more spiritual. And they were buying into it, but what was happening? They were just going around from house to house gossiping constantly and talking and, oh, yeah, and then the gossip turns into slander. The gossip turns into the opportunity for the enemy to say, you call yourself a Christian? Come on, look what you're doing. And then unbelievers are seeing that and hearing that and say, what's going on? This is the church? People who love Jesus, who are indwelled by the Spirit? He says, look, but younger widows, get married so you can get to work. Don't just sit around talking. Care for your, manage your own household. Care for your husband. Care for your children. And serve the church. Serve your older family members who may be widows. They are to seek somebody to serve, either in their own family or serving other family members. And then Paul goes to the elders and honoring elders with respect. He's this phrase, double honor. And he's looking at those with, with those who are laboring, those who've given their lives to serve the church should be honored with respect and with money. Now, not just like, all right, let's bring it all in. No, this is, there's oversight that needs to be oversight. There needs to be pay that's paying pastors and takes into consideration time, uh, maturity level, uh, longevity, all the things that we're used to in life, same things that are good, helpful guidelines within the church. But this respect is for those who prove themselves faithful and fruitful in the labor of preaching and teaching. I've said this many times before. Preaching is labor. Well, I say it this way. This is great. I love this part. It's the 10 plus hours during the week where I'm scratching my head and pacing back and forth going, God, what am I going to say? I, again, coming to start this church, now eight and a half years ago, I literally asked the Lord, God, I think I might run out of examples. I really think I might run out of examples. I'm just going to preach myself to no words anymore and no experiences. 
had somebody tell me years ago, pastors seem like they have everything that happens to them so they can use it in a sermon. I'm like, yeah, it's kind of true. Now less of that happens. We need, we need fresh material that God's providing for us to connect it. The task of speaking in front of people for me is not difficult. And I can find something to say. I can, this is not to boast. I'm, I'm telling you about the labor that I feel. I can, I can take a passage and just talk extemporaneously for 30 minutes. I can do that. I don't know what I'll really say, but I can do it. I can fill words. The task is, God, here's your people. And I'm standing up there to give a sense of the word of God. What do you want to say? Sometimes he'll tell me on Tuesday. Sometimes he'll tell me on Saturday night. It's just weird. But that's a labor that feels like, God, I, and this is my heart, y'all. I want you to see Jesus. Just, I want everybody to see Jesus and be captured by him. And so it's this weird love to preach, but want to get out of the way enough so everybody sees Jesus. And you leave here energized, not because you have some good points to, to, to apply. It's because you know Jesus. And you see him, and you feel him, and he's worthy of our lives. And we say, yes, Jesus, I have your love. I have everything. No matter what faces me this week, I have everything. The labor of preaching and teaching, like I said earlier, can also be overlooked because pastors just seem to have everything together. So they don't need much help. I love for Jordan, Mark, Yvonne and Derek. We love serving the church. We love it. I love it. I don't want to do anything else. I really love this. And I love serving families in their time of need when it's stressful and the calls are late. Yep, there might be a time when it's 10 o'clock and it's time to meet with somebody because there's a crisis. I, I enjoy being there for you. I really do. Please don't apologize. If you ever have to call or set up a meeting, please don't apologize for doing that, for taking up my time. That's what I'm doing. Part of my time is to visit and see how you're doing and let's talk through things. What I would ask for you to understand, I, I am called to this and I'm gifted by the power of the Spirit to do it. My family's not called to it like I am. They sometimes feel, they will feel the burden that I'm carrying with you. And they don't know what to do with it. There's grace. But sometimes it means talking it out and, and I, don't use anybody's names ever. And it's just simply because they'll see dad burdened. One of our daughters is like the first one to see. She'll ask Kathy. She did it since she was little. What's wrong with dad? Because she could just sense something was off. 
love the church. We love God's people. And sometimes we get in situations where it's hard and it's tough and it's long. And we want to we be together. We want to pray for the church. We want to pray for daddy. We want to pray to see this through. And, and they have responded beautifully through the years. But what my, what my kids get... my sin that's what they get my harsh word my annoyances especially when they smack things in their mouth on purpose but my my kids know a weak man sometimes where it looks like to the outwar- outer world that everything oh your dad's just the greatest. They love me. I'm really grateful for that. But they know I ain't the greatest. So what I would ask, and showing me double honor, is to pray for my family. They're just like you have moments in your life with your parents that stick with you. Some are really great, but you have some that are dark or they just hurt. They have those too. When I wasn't kind enough and I wasn't holy enough. I thought of this, I think in the middle of the night, last night, The fruitfulness that that you communicate to me from my preaching, I'm really thankful for that. And when a sermon affects you in a particular way and you're grateful for that, I I I appreciate that and I bring that before the Savior. It really is an answered prayer because it's what I'm looking for and asking for. It's just, I I would have you know, and I thought about this, that's also a fruitfulness of my family's love for me of my family's forgiveness of me when I've gone and said, I was wrong and I sinned against you. Will you forgive me? Two, two, every time, I said, yes. Yes, Dad, I forgive you. This effectiveness is a direct result of that. It's a direct result of that. So, I love to honor my family. I don't often, look, growing up as a pastor's kid, you never know when you're going to be, when your name's not going to be used, but the example is about you, and everybody's looking, trying to figure out, well, who was that? And if you know us well enough, you can figure it out. So I try not to do that. I actually try to ask their permission if I have an example. Because, you know, sometimes something's not happened to me, it's happened to them, and I need help. I need to fill a sermon. I tease. I'm teasing. I need a napkin or a napkin, a paper towel. Paper towel. Tissue, do we have those anywhere? Because I'm getting ready to be very embarrassed. Well, thank you, sir. All right. 
knew I was going to cry during that. I wasn't even prepared. I wasn't even prepared. I love serving you. And I'm so grateful. So grateful to be your pastor. I really, really am. So grateful. Pray for my family. Pray for me. Because when pastors are overlooked, the enemy sees them out on the edge of the flock. And that's where the enemy likes to attack. And you know, you see headlines. The enemy loves to attack pastors. Loves to. People are saved through preaching. So he's going to attack the messenger. Absolutely. He's going to nullify a life to where it makes you think, well, what, what did they say? And what do we do now with what they said? A pastor is also to be honored in support, in pay. So he doesn't have to worry about providing for his family. He uses Moses in Deuteronomy 15.4, do not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Don't prevent something. Don't prevent some of the fruitfulness that's happening just as show mercy to the worker is what Moses was saying. That's what Paul is saying as well. And then he quotes Jesus in Matthew 10.10, the laborer deserves his wages. Now, so you, just for the sake of clarity, I don't set my salary here. Uh, we, have, uh, we have a board that oversees us. Uh, the guys over at Lakeview Christian Center are helpful with that. They participate in that process. Uh, I don't get to say. I don't recommend. I don't do anything. Uh, they are the ones, and we have some local guys here that are involved in that process. And, and so we, we talk. I don't know if I'm going to get a raise or not. I'm like, all right, I have to wait and see. So it's, it's the same things as there's no percentage thing. I know some churches work that where a pastor gets a percentage of the offering. We don't do that. I have a set salary. Jordan Mark set salary, um, and we want to grow. We want to make sure that we are providing, and inflation comes into that. So a lot of the categories that you're used to dealing with in your own experience, we experience the same things. And we also tithe. I mean, that, that sometimes it might be a, a, a weird, to pastors, like tithe, because of the tithes pay the pastor's salary. The tithe, yeah, we do, because God's supplying for us. So we give right back. We honor him with the tithe. But then Paul goes into some categories where he is looking then to protect elders and particularly the office of elder. The first thing he says is guard elders. And he talks about the uh, accusations that come. The church has the responsibility of guarding the reputation of elders by not entertaining gossip, slander, or critical observation that's not founded one, it might not be biblical. It's just, well, I don't like how he sniffs. It's not biblical. Like, let's, let's have something to talk about. But listen, it's easy to talk about leaders. It's harder to defend them. And he says, do it on the account of two or three witnesses. That's a biblical concept, but it also proves that it's not just a blip on the screen. It's something that in, is, is in the course of this man's life that needs to be addressed. He then says, preserve the office by holding elders accountable who persist in sin. Now, there first should be a private call that has already been happening to repent, a private call to stop and honor God with your life and be holy, be a holy man. But if that doesn't work, and we know from other scriptures, that a public response is required, and that's telling the church. Because you know that has, that has an effect on the other elders. I better make sure I'm loving Jesus for the right reasons. 
But it also affects the church because you realize, man, everybody, it matters. The holy life matters. But he also says, don't be, don't make up your mind beforehand. Don't show favoritism. And I think this is where many churches, and this is where headlines come from, too many churches fail to do this because of the pressure of favoritism. And some, it's the, it's the relationship, they have such a good relationship that they, they don't call sin, sin in a pastor's life. And the headlines of whether it's moral failure or just a leadership failure, uh, where there's been a spiritual abuse, manipulation on pastoral teams and stuff, because public calls were never there. It's sad. It's sad when you see those headlines and then there's a follow-up story of how much people knew about it beforehand and didn't say anything. It's sad. The church failed in those moments. It failed the leaders in those moments. Public calls for repentance preserve the office of elder, and they make other elders take their role very seriously. And then to protect elders, there's a discernment that's going into the process of confirming their calling. The enemy's out to get pastors, and a favorite battleground of his is purity. Now, this, there's a little weird parenthesis. I actually put it in parentheses in my notes. There's a parentheses where Paul tells Timothy to go ahead and drink some wine because he's got some stomach issues. Now, it could have been that maybe the false teaching or something about Timothy, he was not wanting to take medicine. Now, wine was used for, it was medicinal in many ways back then. He just didn't want to do it. So he said, no, no, it's okay. For this, it's okay. We also need to recognize that, you know, this is a context for medicine, not partying. Um, and it's okay to take medicines. You know who I'm talking to? I'm going to apply that. There are moments that it's like, I'm still sick. Take some Mucinex. It'll help. Take some Advil. Doesn't mean you'll get addicted. Doesn't mean you're not trusting Jesus. Time tests trust for those who aspire to leadership. When you give them enough time, it reveals sinful attitudes and tendencies. That's why some, Paul says sometimes these guys are loud with their sin. Sometimes it comes later. So he says delay in laying on of hands so we can give enough time for something that is, is in a man's life. It, it gives it time to surface. Now, the third category is with servants, servants who give honor to their bosses, their masters. This section could have been in response to a particular situation in the church, but either way, Paul addresses a segment of the church who were overlooked due to their social status that seems to be having a bad attitude toward their masters. Now, I need to clarify and give a word on slavery. We first need to recognize that Paul doesn't instruct, the, the, the word there's bond servants. Maybe you have a, a version that you use in scripture for your scriptures that has the word slaves. But bond servants, the original word is slave. He doesn't instruct bond servants to revolt and break free of their status. Now, sadly, many pastors and Christians in most recent centuries use this verse and ones like it to justify what we understood as the African slave trade and slavery in the United States. Maybe they didn't understand about slavery in the first century, but there was enough scriptures in the Old Testament to look at to clarify their thought, and they didn't do it, to assist in their interpretation. 
The image that comes to mind for many of us is what's nearest to us historically. We think of the African slave trade and the horrors that we know about it. Slavery as it came to be known in the United States removed the dignity and the worth of black men and women. It was based on false ethnic superiority. It denied image bearers of God the same equality of nature that God created all men and women as his image bearers. The Hebrews in Egypt were enslaved based on false ethnic superiority. They were multiplying. The Egyptians hated the Hebrews. Let's enslave them. But this type of slavery is not the slavery that was in the first century. And it's not the slavery that was talked about at Mount Sinai that God gave Moses that we have in Exodus 21. God permitted a slavery. So do we, what did he permit? God gave Moses guidelines for slavery that handle situations of poverty. Remember, he's, he's orchestrating a civil community along with the religious community of being God's people. But they were civil. They were run by God. And he's saying, here's some rules. When somebody gets in debt that they can't get out of, here's a way to help them out. They can agree to work for you for a certain amount of time. Every seventh year, they were to go free. Every 50th year, everybody goes free. So there was always a freedom associated with what's coming. There was time to either acquire some money to pay off somebody else, or can I work for you because I owe you? Remember, everything was land-based then. It wasn't the currency that we're used to. It was different. And so there were guidelines that spoke into the context that they understood. Slavery in the Old Testament was a way for the poor to get on their feet. And there was always a release point. There was also a prohibition on making someone a slave without their consent. Exodus 21.16, you cannot kidnap somebody and make them a slave. That's why we are praying against, and that's why we had uh, International Justice Mission come do a presentation. We are against human trafficking. They are kidnapping young children and putting them in horrid situations. The guidelines for slaves in Exodus 21 put a restraint on the masters in their behavior toward those who are working for them. And in most cases, both the master and the slave were Hebrew. It was the same, same community. The masters were allowed to, to discipline, but the slave was freed when it went too far. Slavery in Roman culture was more like what God gave to Moses. It was a way, you, you could have a college professor that was a slave to a family, a bondservant to a family, to teach the kids. He just agreed upon, all right, I'll live here, you support me, I'll be your slave, but I'll, and I'll teach your kids in response. And when they're older, I'm done. It was very, very common. Uh, in, in, first, in Greco-Roman culture, you had slaves who could own slaves. So it was a, a, a far-reaching thing. Now, into this context where it's servants, that's why Paul doesn't say, just free yourself. This is sinful, free yourself. Because Paul understands, no, you went into a, a commitment with this master, with this, and then maybe that master is another believer in the church. So just like it's Hebrew and Hebrew, maybe it's Christian and Christian who are now in conversation with one another, try to overcome a debt, try to, try to exchange work for an amount of time. And now in the Greco-Roman culture, there was always a release point as well an agreed-upon release point. 
Now, the gospel, the gospel brought a new ethic into the Roman culture. In Christ, there is no distinction based on ethnicity or wealth. We have that from Colossians 3.11. We're all defined by Jesus' redemption, and we're all defined by our restoration to the Father. We are all sons and daughters of God. What seems to be happening here is a servant's got a bad attitude saying, hey, now we're equal. I'm not under you anymore, so you need to let me go, or you need to, re- you need to uh, uh, forgive my debt, or just make life easier for me. They were using their new creation status and equality with their masters as, as a negotiating tool to get out of their financial agreement. In some way, they're being, they were being disrespectful and bringing dishonor on the name of God. Rather than thinking they could get honored by being one in Christ, they were doing the opposite. They were bringing dishonor upon Christ because they were, they were shirking their responsibility to fulfill their agreement and work. Paul wants them to have a proper motivation. Rather than seeking to get out of work, do your work better to show the relationship that you have as brothers in Christ. And the servant's work should be done in love to bring attention to Jesus. But all of this, widows, elders, and servants, it points to Jesus who had all the status and made himself nothing. He had all the kingship, all the authority, and he chose to come and serve. Paul's instruction for servants gets them to look like Jesus, but look at Jesus. John 13, verses 3 to 5, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands. That's a big statement. The Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. A physical demonstration of what he did spiritually. And he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This is the king of all glory that everybody will bow down to. Everybody. He served. Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in a form of God, did not account, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. In Mark 10, 45, one of my favorite verses of all scripture, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So looking at Jesus gets us to look around with the eyes of Jesus, to see those who may be overlooked, and we care for them. We honor them with mercy, with respect, but we bring that honor, the attention to Jesus. So we don't overlook those in need. We want to show mercy. And we want to serve when nobody's looking because God sees us and want to give our lives away for the gospel. Lord, thank you again for the ability to, to gather with your people so we can Just gaze at your beauty and all the stuff of earth grows strangely dim in the light of your glory and your grace. Shine bright, shine bright.